Hi guys, thank you for joining me on the GenZine podcast. My name is Anushka and I'm the editor-in-chief of GenZine. And if you don't know what that is, we're a publication dedicated to addressing contemporary issues through the eyes of Gen Z. Um, we're a zine, an online community, and with this episode, we're kicking off our podcast too in order to continue these conversations that we're already having. So today we'll be starting it off with an election check-in. This election has been anything but traditional, and our two guests today have been nothing but grounding throughout this journey, um, and so I wanted to share their perspectives with you all. I'm joined by Tajwar Kondakar and Zach Emanuel, who are both seniors at the University of California. Thank you guys so much for coming. Yes, Southern California. Cool. Uh, I'm Zach. I am, like Anushka said, I'm a senior at USC. I'm from Providence, Rhode Island originally, and I'm the political editor for Gen Zine. Um, So I spent a lot of time working on our election guidebook issue. Yeah, I'm Tajwar Kandikar. I'm also a senior at USC, like Anushka noted. I'm from LA, born and raised, and I'm also one of Gen Zine's political writers. Woo, so let's first talk about the election last night, our election day, um, what we were expecting versus what actually happened. I mean, yeah. Um, we have like a writer's room group chat um, that both Anushka and Taj are both in. And I think one of the things that Taj and I both emphasized early on yesterday when we were first starting to talk about what the results could be, um, our kind of conclusions were Biden wouldn't lose, couldn't lose on election night Trump could. And I think as the night rolled out, um, people start to forget that a little bit. Um, at least at the presidential level. Um, right. You know, not, not winning Florida or Texas, uh, Iowa. Yeah, that kind of stung. But none of those states were truly critical to the Biden electoral map other than to put Trump on the defense in more states. And so today, you know, today's now Wednesday, November 4th, um, seeing the news breaking about Michigan and Wisconsin and Arizona, and I'm assuming we're going to get results from, we're going to have a final call on Nevada by the end of the night. Um, We're seeing Biden inch closer and closer to breaking that 270. Yeah, I mean, pretty much what Zach said, coming into the night, you know, people had an idea of what it was supposed to be like because everyone had been talking about it for months from the media onward to other politicians and even Joe Biden, a little less so Donald Trump. But we knew that these results would take a lot of time to unravel and really paint a clear picture because of the way that the results were distributed in terms of in-person votes compared to mail-in and absentee votes. And so, you know, we had all talked about this possibility of a red mirage happening on on election night, and it did. It nothing really, honestly, went very far from what everyone expected. Um, no states were really flipped by Biden, like Texas, Florida, North Carolina. Although we don't know the answer to that yet, other than Arizona, as far as election night, but the places where Biden was trailing that have ended up looking like they're going to decide the race in Michigan and Wisconsin. Um, Biden was behind by quite a significant margin. And as frightening and stressful as that was for a lot of people, it was important to keep in mind that, you know, the mail-in votes and especially the votes from a lot of urban centers, which are Democratic strongholds in these states like Milwaukee and in Detroit, were still waiting to be counted. And as the night 
delayed like kind of like everyone expected him to originally. So, yeah. I think that's a really fair point. Um, And you guys were really holding it down in the writer's room chat yesterday. Everyone was quite literally running around with their heads chopped off. But as you guys mentioned, everything that happened last night was um, kind of what we predicted. But I saw a tweet. It was like, this is like watching your open heart surgery or something. And it's just such a slow burn, even though we knew that it would take till maybe Friday. We knew that these states would come in later. We knew that the red mirage and the mail-in voting would um, have kind of a delayed impact on how the election was unfolding around us. We definitely weren't focusing on that in the moment. And part of that is we love the goss, but last night each hour felt like a dog year. How did you stay so positive? For me, it was a lot of math. Um, I don't watch... Like, I don't watch the news on election night. I just find that to be a little more, you know, frightening, dramatic than it is drawing my own conclusions. I use the New York Times uh, election app, uh, not their election, you know, tracker and whatnot, which for me is really helpful because you're seeing the totals come in. And I'm lucky because I have a pretty decent political education, you know. So I kind of can go based off of the numbers that are just being reported. But the New York Times is a good, uh, at least this election broke out, okay, the mail-in ballots, how many ballots are remaining from Clinton states versus Trump, uh, Clinton counties versus Trump counties. And so kind of keeping it together was really just, okay, yeah, it looks bad right now, but there's still X amount of likely Biden ballots coming in, you know, these area, these counties haven't started reporting. Like we talked uh, talked briefly about earlier, Milwaukee wasn't going to come in until, you know, I don't even know what ungodly hour last night. It was, I think, 3, 3.30? Yeah. Yeah, for me, a lot like Zach said, I, unlike Zach, though, I did actually end up spending my whole night glued to cable TV, <laughs> watching the news and following the election that way, which is definitely a different experience. And although I, you know, still did try to keep up with my own numbers and stuff, it is sometimes hard not to get sucked into the narratives that news media starts to pull together for these kinds of stories and for elections. I do, I will say I did, I was kind of pleasantly surprised by how good of a job CNN did, I thought, of explaining where the votes left were coming from and what they would probably look like. And for example, throughout the night, when Trump built up that big, big lead in Michigan, again, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, of pointing out, yeah, the votes in Milwaukee aren't in yet. There's a lot of absentee votes that haven't been counted. They did a good job keeping track. And so that did keep me kind of level-headed because I knew I had a basic idea of where votes were going to come from, and I had the sense that it was going to fill in the way that we expected to with Biden getting that big push later in the night, which ended up happening. What I do want to point out, though, is although that's all well and good and we've talked about things how things did end up looking the way that we mostly expect them to. There have been, there are a number of surprises from how the results from this election have turned out. And they are, a lot of them, especially if you're a Democrat, are really concerning. Yeah. The fact that, you know, Biden lost Florida and that wasn't necessarily a big surprise. Like everyone knew coming in that that would be a toss-up state and it could go either way. No one expected Biden to lose Florida in the manner that he did. It wasn't by a ton of points. It was like three or four. But Biden actually outperformed Trump compared to Clinton's performance four years ago in most of the state. But the area where Biden did worse than Clinton was Miami-Dade, yeah. which is where you expect Democrats to run up the score and have a 20-point margin. 
Biden didn't do that. Biden won Miami Dade by like 13, 12 points or something. It to me, it mirrors a little bit of what happened in Michigan in 2016 yeah. with Clinton, just a different, you know, kind of whereas Clinton struggled with turning out uh, black voters in Detroit and Flint and in the urban centers of Detroit. Um, the Biden campaign, I think, kind of took for granted in a certain extent um, the Latino vote there. and Especially the Cubans. Yeah, exactly. There's something to be said about how Latino voters are kind of uh, a monolith yeah. in American society. Whereas, right. But the, the breakdown of Latin American political culture over the last 100 years varies dramatically from country to country. Cuban and Venezuelan expats in the United States are incredibly likely to be more Republican-leaning just because they're fleeing from, you know, socialist and communist um, autocracies. So not engaging Cuban voters in, you know, Miami-Dade and even up to, you know, Broward and Fort Lauderdale really kind of cost the Biden campaign an opportunity to put the race to sleep on night one. And just going off the surprises that Taj mentioned, um, it was not a good night Senate-wise and House-wise for the Democrats. Um, There was no follow-up blue wave. The Democrats still have an outside shot at at least tying the Senate. Right. North Carolina and the two Georgia seats. Yeah. The two Georgia seats are going to be really interesting to watch. Uh, Reverend Warnock in uh, Georgia in the Georgia special election, I think, has a very good shot at defeating Kelly Loeffler, who is incredibly unpopular, especially if uh, Biden ends up winning the state. Right. The Purdue Ossoff, I don't even remember how to pronounce it. Ossoff, yeah. They'll be tougher. Uh, That one will be, yeah, that one will be tougher. Right now, the margin as of 340 Pacific time on November 4th, Ossoff needs to triple the margin. Biden needs to win the state to win his Senate seat. Biden is down by 60,000 votes with lots of Atlanta to report later today and other left-leaning Georgia counties. Ossoff's down by like 180,000 votes. But it's, it's, yeah, it's looking like it's a 49-51 Republican advantage in the Senate, if I'm being honest. Yeah. Um, and to be honest, the fact that Susan Collins remains Susan Collins, that's not necessarily the worst thing. Right. Because if it is 49-51, that gives Democrats at least one vote that they historically know, regard, even though for the last four years this might not have been the case. But with a 49-51 split in the Senate, Susan Collins might play that role that she did for a lot of the rest of her career in the Senate of being a swing vote that yeah. does get the Democrats to 50. And especially given how close uh, Sarah Gideon, her opponent, came in that election by portraying her as kind of leaving behind the bipartisanship that she was known for. I think um, Collins will be more motivated to um, be much more of a, uh, a bipartisan vote. Right. Now, this is just speculation, but Biden has mentioned potentially appointing a bipartisan cabinet. And so we're talking 49-51 on election eve, but let's say Biden targets and nominates a, you know, Susan Collins for a cabinet position or nominates, you know, a moderate um, Republican in, you know, 
a swing, you know, in a swing state, it's entirely possible that we won't know the true Senate composition until maybe March, just because of how things will change when people nominated and confirmed for positions. That's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about that, quite honestly. What I would worry about with that, I think, I, is I, I have trouble believing that the Republican Party and the Republican Senate, especially with Mitch McConnell at the helm, would allow for that kind of breaking of ranks, you know? If, yeah. I'm sure, and that's kind of, I think, what we'll see overall from the Senate and the Republican Senate, parts of the Senate, for sure, over the next couple of years, we're going to see a really concerted effort to move as a bloc. And to, because it's the only branch of government or the only part of a branch of government that the Republicans truly control. I mean, besides if, if Biden ends up winning. Um, these were some really amazing insights into what the Senate could possibly look like and all of the different possibilities. But Taj, as you mentioned, this is all off the basis and the assumption that Joe Biden wins the presidency, even though um, the election has kind of folded unfolded the way that we assumed even with President Trump's instigation of legal action. Um, I think it's kind of up in the air what what grounds he actually has to stand on for that and what potential rulings would be, whether they're in his favor or not. Can either of you provide any insight on um, these lawsuits to come? I mean, yeah, the, the Supreme Court challenge, which so far looks like the most significant of the various lawsuits that are being filed from Trump and his campaign and the Republicans about concerning the election um, is probably the one that is going to end up mattering the most, if at all. Um, and what Trump's trying to stand on for that claim in his campaign is pushing the idea that the ballots, the late arriving mail ballots that will pull into Pennsylvania to be counted after, after election day, that'll arrive after November 3rd, um, that those ballots are invalid and that they shouldn't be counted. And it's not just a matter of whether or not it's illegal for those ballots to be counted. Rather, what, as far as I gather, is being questioned by this um, filing is whether or not the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court was justified in their decision to override the state's legislature in allowing that to be the case. And I personally am not very well versed in this kind of law, so I can't say where that would go from, but what I can tell, it is a little bit of a shaky claim. And it would it would take a lot of evid, hard evidence for the Supreme Court to make a strong ruling to overturn what the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court has already decided. Yeah, just kind of piggybacking on that. The Trump legal strategy right now is just kind of all over the place due to how the election shake that shook out. You know, in Michigan, they're trying to stop ballots from being counted. You know, in Pennsylvania, um, they want to throw out they want they want to throw out ballots. In Wisconsin, they want to recount and make sure every ballot is counted. So this kind and of Arizona, yeah, yeah, this contradictory legal strategy, especially given that um, conservative leading justices like down in Texas have already kind of ruled against a lot of the Trump's campaign's attempts to um, change voting measures in their favor on the eve of the election. Um, doesn't make it look likely that um, they really would have any mass legal campaign that would really change the face of the election. Now, if the state, if this, you know, as of now, uh, mo- most news services are reporting that Biden has 264 electoral votes in the back. 
if he wins the next three states, a lot of this really become a lot of this legal theory becomes kind of redundant. You know, just because to be able to wage a legal war in four different states in time to get like four of them overturned and just have the, the results flip is just unlikely. And it's also worth noting that to throw out, it's not getting the late arriving ballots in Pennsylvania thrown out might actually not change anything for Trump. You know, this could be only, you know, a hundred thousand ballots that come in late. There's still 1.4 million that arrived by election time that are unquestionably valid yet to be counted in Pennsylvania. A hundred thousand votes seems like a lot, but also in comparison to how many voters actually turned out this election, it's ridiculous that that doesn't make much of a difference. Um, what did you, what do you guys have to say about this election turnout and what surprised you or what didn't? For me, one of the things is traditionally it's been held that higher turnout is a automatic win for Democrats. Um, that's just one of those things that's been held for a really, really long time. And in certain states like Georgia, like Arizona, you know, that might have made a big difference. Um, but the generalized idea that um, the generalized idea that the uh, higher turnout is just universally good for Democrats was really kind of questioned in this election. Um, and uh, another thing that was kind of questioned um, is, and it was a focus of the article that I put out in our guidebook, was how economic affairs tie into voter behavior. You know, traditionally, when you're in a, re a recession, uh, voters will turn against the president. And frankly, that's one of the only reasons that Trump was even vulnerable. You know, incumbent presidents win a ridiculous amount of the time. Only four times have they been displaced. Yeah. And it's also, and that's not something that's just held in the United States. It's held globally. And in the United States, the last three times that it's happened have been during recessions. But there's kind of a disconnect between the actual economy right now and how voters perceived Trump on the economy. So that become, that brings up a whole new question of is it the economy or how voters perceive the economy being more indicative of how things will turn out? I think Zach has a really good point there, pointing to how maybe more than ever, the perceived state of the country is different from what's actually happening. Because you're right in that most voters' opinion on, on the economy and Trump being polled as being as voters seeing him as stronger on the economy than Biden, even in the midst of the pandemic and the concurrent recession that's occurred, has been kind of surprising to see. Usually what a lot of people actually expected and predicted coming into this election was kind of a referendum on Trump and how he's handled these things and overall the four years of his presidency. But like those polls have shown throughout, Trump's handling of the economy hasn't really been an issue for most citizens. And part of that, along with, you know, other factors, is why Trump was able to turn out more voters than he did in 2016. More people voted for Trump this year than they did in 2016. And I don't think a lot of people saw that coming. A lot of people, I think, picture this election as being a big repudiation of Trump, where a lot of the people who voted for him last time, after seeing how the four years of his presidency 
debased American systems of democracy and broke down traditional lines of decorum in politics. And these people would revert back and, you know, reject Trump this time around. It didn't happen. More people voted for him. More people turned to him. So are these basic ideas of understanding what Americans believe in and what they're looking for in their leaders have to be questioned because a lot of people misread that. And part of that issue, I think, is the way that our current news and social media environment is, you know, we say this word all the time, but polarized, but especially to the extent of very narratives floating around for things that are actually happening in real life and some things that aren't. We saw a QAnon-affiliated woman win a seat in the House of Representatives yesterday. Like, the alternative reality and alternative realities, plural, are something that are really prevalent throughout a lot of American society, and that makes for a really different electorate. But maybe to end on a happy note, more people have voted for Joe Biden than we have any other president. And so broke 50%. Than in any other election. Yeah. And he broke 50%. I can't even, I don't even remember when the last time a president outright won 50, over 50% of the country. We're 24 hours into the election. I'm sure we'll have um, more clear answers by the end of the night. How do you guys see this all playing out? I think it's notable for me that we might have a decision by tonight. Um, I wasn't really expecting that. I was probably expecting, you know, maybe, you know, Friday morning maybe Monday mo- next Monday morning. So the fact of the matter is that we might get a call tonight, depending on these Nevada ballots that are supposedly coming out in approximately two hours tonight. That could really kind of put, that could put Biden over the edge, um, even without Georgia getting a call or Pennsylvania being called. Like Zach said, it looks like tonight we might have the answers to the selection and it might end up being more or less decided. In addition to Nevada having its results come in today um, instead of yes, instead of tomorrow, like the state had orin- originally announced last night, um, Maricopa County in Arizona, the biggest county where Phoenix is and where a big chunk of its remaining 600,000 votes are going to come from, says that they're going to post a lot of their numbers by tonight also. And so Arizona, which some places have called, other organizations haven't called Arizona yet, and Trump and his campaign are still claiming that their votes in Arizona for him. We'll know the answer to that for sure, more or less, by tonight also. So, And on top of that, Georgia looks like it might come closer to a close tonight. We might have most of the answers we need to make a call in this race by tonight. And so now we sit and wait. Um, thank you both for coming and blessing us with your sage wisdom. It means a lot to me, and it means a lot to at least the people in the writer's room, and I'm sure so many more. Everyone, take care for the rest of election.